Today is June the 17th, 2018. Lecture discussion number 27 on the book of Joel, the special Father's Day edition. No one believes that. And being the highly trained religious, religious professional that I am, with decades of expertise in all things liturgical, I can therefore, I have learned to anticipate, and I'm very accurate with it, what it is that the analog and the digital uh, congregants will be thinking at the predetermined intervals in a lecture series. For example, today is the halfway point, which means 26 are behind us, that's half a year, and we are now at in Joel lecture number 27, which of course comes after lecture number 26. Let the record demonstrate that lecture number 26 is immediately immediately sequential to lecture 27. That's why I get the big money here, noting things like that. Anyway, post-lecture 26, there was a unanimous response, which was last week, all, both digitally and uh, those of you who are here physically. A unanimous response, almost uh, ubiquitous, all rose up in unity and said the following. I took the top three answers. What is he talking about? What does this have to do with the book of Joel? And make him stop. That's uh, pretty much how it went last week. Now, and many might suggest that minimal or none or no prescience was required in predicting that as these are the enduring reactions of those who attend and listen online here at Cliffside. In other words, the prediction is meaningless. An infant could have accomplished it. And, uh, and that was followed by Peshaw, Harumph, and Humbug, they would say. That's the muttering that goes on here. It's quite typical. I actually find it amusing, and I enjoy it. And I'm going to concede that those are, in fact, the usual constant repost here. And at least that goes on for a while. And I know it. And like I said, I prepare for it. And I actually think that it is the right position for you to be in, as a matter of fact. But then, after some miraculous time occurs, or actually at a miraculous last minute, amazing an act of pastor magic happens and everything that I have given you that you do not understand in the sense you have not connected it, I will connect it for you. It will become clear. Resolution will abound. You'll all be in awe, at least one or two of you. You'll marvel. And the, the applause, plan revealed, it's amazing. None of that's going to happen today. Absolutely not. But it will happen, or maybe Maybe not. With that said, it's time to review. Time, did you get that? Let me help you with the special lecture. There we go. That wasn't easy to come up with. That's all I got. We need to review this well-worn path that we've been trudging. And I know that it's been trudged. I recognize the concrete that you were walking through, and it's a sludging fight. Uh, but it's worth it. I really do believe that, or I wouldn't do it. And I think you know that enough about me to know that that's exactly how I feel. We're in Joel 2, 30 through 31. That's where we're at. Let me, let's read a little bit of that really fast, so to refresh you. 
I'll get the Bible right side up. Okay, here's what he says at verse 30, chapter 2 of Joel. And I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth. Write that down. Wonders, heavens. How many heavens are there? Earth. I'll help you. There are three heavens. Is he talking about all three or just one of them? I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and pillars and smoke. Blood, fire, pillars, smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Sun dark. Moon, blood. Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. (coughs) Excuse me. This is God speaking. Let me repeat it. I will pour out my spirit. Pour out. My spirit. I will pour out my spirit in those days and I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming. That will happen before the coming of the great and awesome our great and dreadful day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is perhaps the most known uh, verses of the most known verses, repeated verses in the book of Joel. And again, this is God speaking. Who does he speak to? Who's going to hear th- what he says? Who is this for? What is the context? What does it mean? Well, I'll help you really fast. God is speaking to the nation of Israel. The church has been ad- abducted, carried away. It's the carrying away of the church. And Israel is in the tribulation. This is the context of in those days. This is the those days. Israel is under great persecution. They're being slaughtered. So, that's, that's, we have to know when he is going to do these things in order to understand what he is doing. So, what is God's definition of wonders? What do you think it is? He gives you some clues there. What is a wonder as God so describes it? When is the last time a human being witnessed what God says is a wonder? Are wonders common? We have a movement in the, in the, in the country, in the world now, not so much the world, but it's called the Signs and Wonders Movement. Do they really have wonders? God gives you what a wonder is here. Do they have those? Any set aside the greed-soaked frauds that have overwhelmed the contemporary church. By what contemporary, I mean this church at this time. Set those people aside. When God says he will show wonders in heavens and the earth, immediately I have to ask myself, is he addressing the angelic realm and is he addressing the mankind or the human domain? Is that what he's saying? Is that a 
Is he just giving you a location or is he telling you who the individuals are that have authority over those locations? So is this the angelic realm, the spiritual realm, and the physical reality, the human domain? What does God mean? I can tell you with complete confidence, it is not in any fashion what the scam artist lying televangelists are doing. That's a redundancy. I don't need to say scam artist lying televangelists. I repeat myself there. There is not one thing in common between what God calls a wonder or a sign and what they call a wonder or a sign. Not one thing in common. Those that pretend to speak for God have everything perfectly, absolutely wrong. You could not be more perfectly wrong than them. But I digress. Digress means rant, as you know. God gives us more information about what he calls a wonder. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. That's a wonder. Who witnesses the wonder? Well, obviously Israel does, but who else does it? Whose blood is this? When I tell you there's going to be blood and fire and pillars of smoke, what am I describing typically to you? Yeah, I, Bill the Cow articulated it perfectly. For those who didn't hear it, I'll help you. Obviously, this is evidence of, this is the aftermath of a violent attack. First place you would see, you would see, where has God blood and pillars and smoke and fire? Where is that? Well, first you would go to Genesis 19, 23 through 29, wouldn't you? So I see Gen 19 right here. God rained down fire and, and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. The smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a, I'm sorry, yeah, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace, pillars of smoke. I have Lot's wife, pillars of salt. We're going to end up having to compare in order to understand Joel 2. 30 through 31, we're going to have to compare, I know we all appreciate this, pillars of salt with pillars of smoke. What is the difference between a pillar of salt and a pillar of smoke? But we're not going to do that today, but just put it on the list of things we have to accomplish. For today, notice that God pretty much repeats Genesis 19. He does it here in Joel in the tribulational period before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So that's important to know. When is the great and dreadful day of the, of the Lord? So somebody is targeted here uh, just as Genesis 19 was a target. Why are they targeted? And this is what God calls a wonder. This is a wonder. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon with blood. That's a wonder. Don't buy a $54 million jet for somebody that tells you he does wonders until he can make the moon blood and the sun dark. Then we'll give him a jet. He can do that. He won't want a jet. 
I know I'm, yeah, I'm being disrespectful. I recognize that, but I'm doing it on purpose because they absolutely sicken me with how many people they are able to fool. Why is the Christian church so dumb that they are fooled by these guys? And women, there are women out there, see the blue light, follow the blue light. I don't know what to say. But the church should never have been this easy to manipulate. We should be the wise. But instead, we're the fleeced. And it is a shame. It is, it is, it is so, so destructive to fall for this kind of stuff. It's destructive in your own families. It's destructive to your children. Your children will grow up thinking you're idiots if you fall for this. They'll be right. And that will be destructive to them because they will not believe you when you tell them the truth. I have a wonderful lady. I, she may even come up here and visit us. I won't use her name, but she's the, my favorite in Cincinnati. Now, all of Ohio, frankly, but she's coming up, I, I think, maybe not, because it's raining every day when it's not snowing. Do you know it snowed a foot and a half? Where was that? Eureka last week. Yay, Alaska. So you're going to visit us. Bring a parka because it's July. Anyway, the point is, is that she will tell you her family because she was trapped in one of these kinds of churches. Uh, her family suffered greatly, her children. And it makes her mourn. That will happen. That is the typical response to, to giving money to somebody who tells you, God said, I, I need to buy a jet plane. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the mud, mud, the moon into blood. There can be no dispute about what's being said about the sun and the moon here. The sun shall be turned into darkness. Now, some will say that's because the smoke went up and it was so heavy that it made it dark. It's not what it says. It says the sun shall be turned into darkness. If the smoke rises up and blots out the sun, is that a wonder? No, that's just what's happening in Hawaii. Okay? We, lo we had a uh, volcano here, and it, we, we were playing a softball game in the middle of it, and it all came down on top of us. I can't remember how many years that was ago, but at least 25, I would guess. No, not that far. 20. What, what do you think? Do you think I'm right about that? Okay, then I'm going the other way. It was 20 years ago. <laughs> Huh? You were under the age of 10 and you're 40 what? Okay, that's my daughter for you. Anyway, um, so she's thinking it's uh, in the 20s as well, and Crazy Becky is probably wrong. <laughs> anyway, what was the name of the volcano? Can we remember? Spur? Was it Mount Spur? Yeah. But we're playing softball, turns completely dark. And it was dark as it could be. Is that a wonder of God? No, that's a volcano. That's a natural physical circumstance. This is not that. This is a wonder. The, the sun shall be turned into darkness. The particle light is blacked out. There are four blackouts during the tribulation. This is one of them. 
what are the obvious questions about blackouts? Why is he blacking? Why a blackout? And why is there four of them? And why are they happening at the time that they're happening? What is he trying to say? Because he is saying something. He is teaching something. So, again, that's where we will be in the weeks to come. What is the purpose of these blackouts? Why does he plunge the earth into darkness? And note that it's the opposite of Genesis 1.3. 1.3, I have the earth is in darkness and the primeval light, the non-particle light. Jesus Christ, who calls himself this light in John 8.12, I am the light that hits the earth in Genesis 1.3. I am the light of life, John 8.12. To repeat that, I can't say it enough. And so that's what's happening in Genesis 1-3. The darkness is removed. The light has come and the darkness is separated from the light. I have half darkness and half light. Here, I have nothing but darkness. So the darkness is back once again, reigning over the earth. Why does God allow the darkness to reign completely over the earth? Why is the moon blood? What does he mean by blood? Is it just the color? Or is it actual blood? Why is the moon described as blood? Those of Israel who this is addressed to, they see this and they respond. What do they do? They call upon the name of the Lord and they're saved. Israel sees this darkening of the sun and the moon, the smoke and the fire. And they call on the name of the Lord. This is the pouring out of the Spirit. Holy, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, relates this time also to the Gentiles. Roman, Romans 10.13, indicating that God, though he is focused on his nation of Israel, he is turning the will of the stiff-necked people towards him. Christ is doing this. He also simultaneously includes Gentiles in it. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So there's a great deal going on here. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is coming for the Jews. This is the time that he is coming for his nation, which has rejected him, which does not believe that he is the creator God of all things. They don't believe that. They don't even think he's the Messiah, much less complete and absolute God. He's God in the flesh, and he's coming for the Jews, and he will save all who call upon him, and Israel will finally know who he actually is. He's revealed to them as the I Am of Exodus 3. And the God who sent himself to the darkness in Genesis 1-3, the primal light, the God who installed the sun and the moon to keep time to rule the daylight and the darkness, so I have light and darkness again, has blackened the sun, and the sun goes dark. What's the first obvious question? How long? How long can I have no sun? Joel 3.15 repeats this circumstance. The sun and the moon grow dark. So the clock that God establishes in Genesis 1 on the fourth day is stopped. Why does he stop the clock? Because he does. Shuts it off. Sun goes dark. Can't tell time. No light. Earth can rotate. The earth is rotating now. How many of you think so? You all think you're stationary. Some of you think you're asleep. But the earth is rotating. 
there's movement. He stops the sun, so the earth rotates. I have nothing but darkness. And many are saved because of this. They cry out to Christ Jesus, the only one who can save them. We are saved only through the blood, uh, the blood covering of Jesus Christ. The sun is dark and the moon is blood and time is running out, but yet there's still time to be saved. Once we get to Joel 3.15, both the sun and the moon are dark. And God made a statement in Genesis 1.16 when he placed the two great lights and the stars also. He made the statement, and I said last week that this is a definitive statement to the angels. He is talking to the angels. The angels... If you know my timeline and you may disagree with me, and if you do, it's perfectly fine as long as you know you're wrong. The fall of Satan has occurred um, the most, and I'll just really quickly go over it. I think the fall of Satan happened 100 years after his creation. And so, um, and it and the result that you see of the fall of Satan is that the earth is now completely covered with water and is pitch black. There was light there. We see that in Ezekiel 28. It is a place of great brilliance, Eden, the mineral Eden, where Satan ruled. But all of that's gone and it's covered in darkness and the angels are there. And what the angels see is God on the fourth day installing the sun and the moon, the great lights and the stars also. This is something that he is saying to the angels. How do I know it's the angels that he is saying it to? Because they're the only ones that saw it. This happened before the creation of Adam. How many angels are there? Millions and millions. And he gives them the sun and the moon and stars. So I have both fallen and all fallen. All of Genesis chapter 1 is applicable directly to the angelic host. That is who is watching it. That's a Job reference. So how is it applicable? What is the definitive statement? Why did God add a clock? So that's what he does. This is time. Where is Father Time? God, of course, is the Almighty Father. It's one of the names of Christ, Everlasting Father. And now he's installed time for the angels. Father Time on Father's Day. Fantastic. Oh, my goodness. How does he do it? It's astonishing. Or not. What is he saying, if this is directly applicable, and I believe it is to the angelic situation, how is it directly applicable? And when he added a clock, did they understand it was a clock? He sets everything in motion. Did time already exist? Obviously, Ezekiel 28, 12 through 19, Satan once had authority over the mineral Eden. So, did he have authority over the mineral Eden when and also be inside of time? And let me repeat that the clock and the dividing of light from darkness occurs prior to the creation of Adam. Let's ask another question that will help you understand where time began. Does the Bible tell you where time began? 
It does. That's how it starts. Time began, it says. Let me read it to you. Oh, I'm going to find it. He, as a professional, I've got to get past all the gobbledygook in the beginning telling me what they think the Bible says. It says right here, God uh, started time. First one line. Is the sun necessary for life? You can raise your hands here. Is the sun necessary for life? If I don't have the sun, do I have any life? No, the sun is not necessary for life. Revelation 22.5 It's the light of life. Only the light of life that is essential for life. The sun is merely a functional symbol for the non-particle primable light. The Shekinah glory, if you will. So it is the great light because it represents Christ, who is the light of life. The moon is the lesser light. And as you heard me last week, I'm telling you this is primal light contrasted with particle or photon light. Does the moon, light from the moon, does that have any uh, impact on life at all? Does it photosynthesis? Does it, what does it do? The moon. If I have moonlight, how, much, how many roses can I grow? That is the reflective light, if you will, the particle or the photon light. And we're seeing God say that there is two types of light. He is the uncreated light. Christ is the uncreated light that gives life, that makes life, if you will. And the other is, uh, is the particle light, the lesser light. The light which typifies the light of life, John 8:12, is the great light, the sun. So to repeat the question, if time had already been installed, Genesis 1-1, the angels are after the beginning of time. So therefore, they are in time. Why is a clock placed before them then? They already know about time. I think Ezekiel 28 makes that clear. And also the fact that the change to the earth and the mineral Eden has occurred. Time and change have a relationship. So time clearly is there. Why is a clock now placed before them? How much time will the clock run for? And obviously, I'm suggesting that the clock is not keeping current time. That's not its role. What am I saying the clock is? I'm saying that it is a I'm saying it's a countdown clock. Think bomb. Think alarm. So how much time will the clock run? It's counting down the time. That's why it was installed. And the first people, first beings to notice this, of course, is the angelic realm. Counting down time. To what? Why did he do it? And clearly the lake of fire is involved here. The place made for the angels. The ending, if you will, the confining of sin and fire and utter darkness. Or if you prefer, time has a relationship to death, time and death. The lake of fire is the second death. So the countdown is to the time of the second death. That's the true death as God defines death. That is eternal death as he defines eternal death. Okay? 
Now back to the darkness. The sun becomes dark because of this wonder. And people cry out to Christ. And whoever calls out to the, on the, to the name of Christ is saved. And they are saved before the coming and of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And once again, Jesus Christ, whose very name means salvation, Yeshua is salvation, is saving all who will come to him to be saved. That which is doomed for many is seen as deliverance to those who reach for the hand of Christ. So, <clears throat> you see, darkness has two applications then. If you are in unbelief, then it is a curse to you. If you are in belief, it is salvation to you. Darkness is mercy, therefore. What can happen in thorough darkness? The whole place is dark. I got a blood moon, but do I have it all the time? No, half the time. The moon's on the wrong side. How about the people that don't have the blood moon? How bright is a red moon? I got a little starlight. Maybe we have electricity if you're on the earth. What can happen in thorough darkness? How much vision on earth having only starlight? Very difficult to kill what you can't see. Remember, this is the tribulation. This is the time of the Antichrist. This is the time of great turmoil, geopolitical turmoil. There is war constantly. There is killing without ceasing. Does that remind you? Violence everywhere. Does that remind you of the Genesis flood, the time prior to the Genesis flood? Absolutely. There's a relationship between the tribulation and the time of Noah. Evil mankind is now without heat and light, and they grope about in the darkness. God does that to evil a lot. He did it at Genesis in Sodom and Gomorrah. They groped around in the darkness. He's doing it again. And the Jews recognize it and they cry out. And Gentiles recognize it and cry out for the wonder that it is. They know that salvation, the time of them being saved is on them. And as I said... Jesus Christ will save. He will save in the darkness because he's the light that comes to the darkness. And you see the same patterns, the same portraits over and over and over again. How much time is left? How much time on the clock? Is it a digital clock? Probably not. Can you figure it out? Absolutely. You can figure it out. Did he give us time and tell us that we can't ever tell time? He says that you won't know the day or the hour. How about the week or the month? How about the year? And all of this is why I subject you to the origins of time and space and motion and physical matter and energy and light and gravity and consciousness, which is the soul and the spirit and the mind and language and the mathematics of language and mathematics alone. Those are the mysteries of creation that are not articulated in the Bible in a way that it makes it clear. There are other mysteries of the Bible that are, that are put forward in definitive terms, but these are nonetheless mysteries of the creation. What are the purposes of all those things? Why has God done these things? As you know, they testify of him. Every one of them, let me go back to them. Time testifies of Christ. Space, motion, physical matter, energy, light, gravity, consciousness, 
Testify. The fact that you have a understanding, a self-awareness of who you are, that you have conscious thoughts, that testifies of God, testifies of Christ. Language, there is no language that is not subject to mathematical principles. Mathematics is an idea, it's a concept. Where did math come from? Ultimately, as you know, that, that's the question of infinity. Mathematics testifies of God, his creation. All of those do. They're, they're the mysteries of the creation. There isn't a physicist alive that won't tell you that they're not mysteries. Life testifies of God. So first and foremost, that's what they do. And at least we should have this minimal understanding. Unfortunately, the church is, what's the word that I want? Clueless about any of this. They don't even know that they're there, and they don't know what they mean, and they don't care because you can't make money. No $54 million jets telling people about Time, space, and motion. I'll prove it here in just about three minutes. We could look outside. You see, I should point out there are a few trucks and cars out there that are not silver. You're required to bring a silver vehicle to this church, apparently. Okay. <laughs> Fight breaks out at Cliffside. See, see news at 11. Do you have a silver vehicle? It looks silver to me. It's what? Blue. So silver blue, is that what we're saying? Okay. How would you know? Kibitz are in the back, bro. You know I'm too slow to get down there. and Yeah. I used to just leap from the pulpit all the way to the back row and beat the students. But I, this was a full can of soda. I would no, I wouldn't throw. It. I'd be completely. I might throw the Worcestershire sauce. I have I have a lecture to do, dear. Okay. These things, we have to have a minimal understanding of them. We do. I know you, it's hard. I got all of that. But this is the Romans 1, 18 through 28. This is what this means in Romans 1. Quickly, I'll read it because it looks like I'm way ahead of my allotted time. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Let me list the things that he made. He made time, space, motion, Physical matter, energy, light, gravity, consciousness, life, language, mathematics, the soul, the spirit, the mind. Those are all evident. They're all around you. There isn't anyone that does not understand that consciousness exists, does not understand that time exists, that there's space, that there's gravity. And every single one of these things that I've listed over and over again to you to try to beat it into you as best I can. It works better for some than others. 
All of these testify of him. They proclaim the internal, look what it says, the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There is no excuse. His eternal power and the triune nature, Christ, the Father, Holy Spirit, the angel of the Lord, the Lord God, the Spirit of the Lord, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, whichever triune nomenclature you use, this is being testified of the triunity of God in those things that he has made that, that leave all men without excuse. The, the old question, what about the guy that never heard a preacher? Well, he's probably better off. He's certainly awake more. Truth is, is that we have been given all of these things so that we will know who Christ is. And everyone has been given it. And they are clearly seen. Everyone, again, knows experiences. No one can deny. No one will be able to stand before the judge of all time, of all things, and say that there is no God and defend their unbelief. They've been immersed in the things that are made. So that is why I keep bringing these over up all the time. Of all people, the church should be the stewards of these things that are made. We're the guardians. We have been given the responsibility to teach these things, and we don't do it. And we don't do it on purpose. It is open defiance. How's that going to work out? It's, it's the, the neglecting of the mysteries of God is a tragic, sad truth. And it has affected the children, our children. We have the mysteries of his creation and they feather into the mysteries that he defines in his word. The 11 mysteries in the Bible. If I gave churches, I gave this church and I won't do it because I don't want to know. But if I ask you to list the 11 mysteries of God in chronological sequential order, most of you couldn't do it. At least know what the first one. What is the first one? I will help you. You should see your faces. First one is the mystery of godliness. It is Christ God adding humanity. It is the hypostatic union. It is the greatest mystery of all the mysteries. Did Bill get it? Of course Bill got it right. Bill has been bludgeoned by me for 30 years now. Both at work and here. He didn't need me to do it. I'm just trying to take credit. That mystery of godliness is foremost. You have to, you have to, you got to do it because you're going to be asked. The first thing Christ will ask you is, who am I? Be nice to know the answer to that and be able to explain it. Better not leave out his infinity. Infinite God, perfect humanity in union. Okay. And that is why I attempt to persevere in the task of explaining as best as I am able. I know it's not good enough. I do the best that I am able. The mysteries, all the mysteries. So, let's go after it again really quick. Why do we, why do you have a frame of observation? Because you do. You have a reference. It's a self-reference. And you Observe things from your reference point. Your reference point last week was on a train. And you were moving on a train. And somebody else had a reference point 
that was standing watching the train go by. Both of you had a reference point. One was in more motion than the other. Does that make sense? Because you're on an earth and you're orbiting and you're spinning. Both of you are in a reference frame that is moving, but one is moving in the moving reference frame. Anyone confused? Good. I want you to ask yourself, why do I have a frame of reference? What is the origin of my frame of reference? Why do you have a frame of observation? This, of course, is relativity, isn't it? Physics. All of us have a personal frame of reference. Last Sunday, again, for those who endured it, and you get an achievement patch, you get certificates, you get an engraved plaque, it's all ordered. But if you got through it last week, you know that this is the underpinning of the premise of relativity. That being that all observers can claim to be stationary. I'm claiming to be stationary. I will prove it. I will throw this up in the air and catch it. Yay! That means that if I'm on a train and I throw it up and catch it, it does the same thing, doesn't it? Because I have a constant velocity. I have a constant velocity now. I know I do, but I think I'm stationary. I'm on a train. I'm in a constant velocity. I know I'm moving. I rode on trains first part of my adult life. It was miserable. As you know, every day, same rotten train. That's not true. I, I was in the mechanical branch, but I knew every time I got on a train, I was risking my life. I understood who was operating that thing. Anyway, point being is, is that on that train, I could throw a ball in the air and I could catch it. And everybody on the train is moving with me. We have a frame of reference that's in motion. As we pass a guy standing on the depot platform, he thinks the train is moving. We think he's moving. That is our frame of reference. And both of us are right. But every one of us can claim to be stationary. All observers can claim to be stationary, assuming a constant velocity. That is the premise of relativity. Added to this is that all observers see the speed of light to be equal. That's an important understanding If you, as you study uh, relativity. In other words, everyone, all observers, regardless of velocity of the observers or to the observers, see light the same, the speed of light the same. Add to that, nothing can move through time and space faster than the speed of light. No information, for example, can travel. Thank you for the time. <laughs> no information can travel faster than the speed of light. So there's a speed re restriction, if you will, in the physical reality, a speed limit. What's the obvious question? If it's true, let's, let's go ahead and accept the premise of relativity, and it's important to know what the premise is. If it's true that no information, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, what is the most obvious of the obvious questions? Why is that true? And if it is true, then who did it? God did it. Why? Why did he make particle light the fastest? Here's an easy question. Who's faster? Infinite God, omnipotent God, omnipresent God, omniscient God, omnibenevolent God, or a photon? Which one goes fastest? But relativists, relativists will tell you that there is a speed restriction, a speed limit. And these are the predictions of the theory of relativity, as you know. 
And there's also the supposition that time is affected by velocity. Moving clocks run slower than stationary clocks. There's a reason for that. It's called time dilation. Dilation, if I dilate your eyes, what do I do to your eyes? They expand, right? So time dilation is time expansion. Time can be expanded by in a velocity. Moving clocks run slower than stationary clocks because the clock is going this direction and at the same time it is recording this direction. So I end up with a vector. And you'll see time described like this in a velocity. From the reference point of someone who is witnessing it, believing they are stationary. Now, there will be a test at the end of this. <laughs> you won't be able to eat from the buffet unless you get one question right. None of that's true, but I keep wanting to do it. Physicists are quite confident that these proposals of relativity are correct. What should the church do? We should, we should measure them. We should test them before the truths of Scripture. We'll find out. The physicists will insist they will cite many experiments that validate relativity. But yet that doesn't solve the questions. Why is there a speed of light restriction? For example, it's 300,000 kilometers per second for the Europeans. 186,000 miles per second for the non-Europeans. That's you, me. Why this restriction? Is it true? And why becomes key? The questions that are important are the why questions. The why questions are the, always the best questions. Okay, back to why do we possess a frame of observation? What am I talking about? I'm talking about your self-awareness and your cons consciousness here. What it means to you. How you observe things. And hopefully you all, or at least one of you, remembers a couple of weeks ago that I asked the question of God in motion. Does God see motion? I asked last week, what if everything was frozen for a period of time, nothing moved, nothing changed, did time continue? Do you remember that question? Does God see motion ultimately becomes uh, on the plate of things to discuss? Or does God see each individual segment of time? Let me put it this way. Is time, it's, this is the question of divisibility of time or the instance of time. If time is composed of instants, and at every instant there is no motion occurring, if everything is motionless at an instant, then motion is impossible. Now, that makes no sense to you this week. But stick it out. Welcome to the quantum Zeno effect. That's what I'm giving you today. Now, you know why I pose the question about the suspension of motion during lecture number 26. Probably the best way to deal with this is to imagine a deck of cards. Okay. Here's a deck of cards. Uh, okay, it's better this way. Here's a deck of cards. Can you see that? And I'm going to have a picture on every deck or every card. They're not playing cards. They're blank. And I'm going to riffle them. I'm going to allow them go like that. And each, each page, if you will, or each card has a photographic image of it. Now, you've all done this as kids. 
They're sequential photographs. Just imagine a dog chasing down a thrown ball. And each card is an instant of that dog chasing that ball, right? So each, how long do you want each card to represent in time? A second? Let's do half a second. Each card is a half a second. So there's an image every half a second of that dog. And I'm riffling those cards. And what do you see? You see motion. But I could stop and show you one card, and that's motionlessness, isn't it? So I asked the question, does God see motion, or does he see motionlessness? Say that really fast. Each card has an instant on it of the event. And if they're riffled, the individual images convert to motion. And if you wish, you can consider frames of film with a projection device. And all of us have seen the multiple photographs of an activity from the new rapid-fire digital cameras that capture the ball in the air as it's moving. You see all these pictures combined into one photograph, right? You've seen those. They're amazing. The rapid-fire digital cameras that capture the images in fractions of seconds apart. Now, take that concept and expand it. Conceive of millions and millions of photographs capturing something in motion that are microseconds, thousands of a second, hundreds of thousands of a second apart. Nothing is moving in that hundreds of a second or thousands of a second or hundreds of thousands of a second. So I have millions of cards in the deck if you want. Each one um, possesses an instant of motion. So does God see the instants? Does he see the individual cards or does he see them all in motion? What is your conclusion? Can he see time divided so that there's no motion? Is that how he sees his creation? Motionlessness. This is the question in physics is does motion actually exist? And of course this ultimately causes the question... How fast is time? And hopefully you've begun to see the enormity of these issues. This is just the nature of time that proves that Christ is God. That's all this one is. He does say that he's time. Remember that. It says it in Revelation 1. So what did you conclude? Does God see motion? Or does he just see individual cards? How many think that he just sees individual cards? Never raise your hand here. How many think that he sees motion? Does he see just the divisions of time? God has will. Know that the will of God is declared. This is the will of God revealed, right? He has will. It's declared throughout the Bible. His revealed word. And God, therefore, can freely choose. And God, therefore, has free will. God has a frame of observation. He has the absolute frame of reference. He can choose to see motion or he can will to see the instance. We can only choose to see motion. And obviously, he set everything in motion. Motion demonstrates life. Motion manifests will. I am making signals with my hand. That's my mind telling my brain to do that because I think it's clever. So you're now reading my mind by watching my hand flop around. I would show you my tricep, but then you would run in fear. Existence is independent from motion. 
Physical motion is directly connected to existence, but existence is independent from motion. Existence continues if motion ends or stops. The creation is observer-based. Observation is critical, as you know. Particle reality has to be observed. It's the observer effect. In order to be reality, no phenomenon is real until it is observed. John Wheeler, a physicist, said that, a contemporary of Einstein, a confidant of Einstein. And Einstein believed that time was individual to each individual. In other words, he believed that time is perceived by an individual, and therefore time was a creation of each observer, and we're all observers. Therefore, we think time... And I had a conversation on the phone with a young man from California this morning. We think that time is real, but we are just fooling ourselves. That's what Einstein believed. Every one of us believes in time, but time is relative to us. In one sense, Einstein recognized the necessity of consciousness to the physical reality. That's good. He recognized that you have to think about time in order for time to exist. That was his position. Uh, as you know, Newton said, no, time is independent. It has a consciousness that controls it. And you don't control it. You just recognize it. And I would argue that, um, that it is obviously true that without consciousness, there is nothingness. That, again, is the observer effect. Reality must be perceived to be real. So there has to be, if the tree falls in the forest, some consciousness has to observe it or it's not real. And I would argue that nothingness demands consciousness as well. And that's probably too much for today. The point is, God has made us to be observers. He wants us to observe. Why does he want us to observe? Why not just be little run-around idiots? Oh, wait. But he made us observers. We observe. And our observations affect reality. I can prove that to you with interferometry. God is the absolute observer, though, however, and the absolute consciousness that spoke all things into existence. And we are what? We have consciousness. He has consciousness. We have a frame of reference. He has a frame of reference. We make decisions. Our observation causes things. His observation causes everything. What is he telling you? What's a human being? A human being is a representation. We are in the what of God. He tells us, Genesis 1.26, we are in the image of God. Unquestionably as profound a verse as there is in the Bible. And hardly anyone knows what it means. It is talking about frames of reference, observation, consciousness, will. Another great sadness or failure of the church. Okay, favorite words of Cliffside. Finishing finally on this note. Speed of light is the same for all observers with the exception of God. Is that true? If it's true, why is it true? Law of physics are the same for all observers who are moving with respect to each other at constant speeds. Why is that true? Gravity and velocity, however, affect and influence time. In other words, a moving clock is slower. A clock under velocity is slower than a non-moving or a stationary clock. And gravity affects time. What did we learn now about time? 
What is time? If time is merely a human construction, an illusion of a human mind, a tool to measure change, how is it that gravity affects it? Because gravity affects it. How can velocity and speed affect it or influence it? If all it is is an illusion, as Einstein says. You have to answer that. Have fun with that. When you figure that out, you will understand how it is that time, gravity, and velocity are evidences of Christ's deity.